<clears throat> so Saint Azdabal said, by Pastor Antonio, we will consider the element of bread this afternoon, the significance of somewhat of the significance of bread, but more so the type of bread that we use. First we want to consider though, um, does it matter what we use at the supper? Uh, does it matter uh, what we use at the Lord's Supper? Uh, there are many Christians who would advocate that it doesn't matter what we use at the supper. So one can say, um, I can use Teddy Grahams and orange juice um, at the Lord's Supper. Now, uh, it's, it's, very, it's very comical, but we have to even ask, why is that, though, not appropriate? Why is not uh, a graham cracker and uh, orange juice not appropriate for the Lord's Supper? Um, even if you have good intention, even if you believe that Jesus Christ has died for you, even if you believe that um, uh, that God is giving to you or working grace within you, when you partake of a, uh, a honey graham cracker or orange juice, even if you have the best intentions, uh, why aren't those the proper elements? Why aren't milk and cookies the proper elements? You can just exchange whatever elements you could, right, or with it. Doesn't matter. Well, first and foremost, yes, it does matter. It does matter what we use at the Lord's Supper. Just as it matters what type of songs that we sing during a worship service, um, just as it matters the content of the preached message when a preacher goes forth and preaches word, God's word, it matters. Just as it matters how one um, is... Um, uh, receiving the word of God, your posture during the preached word. Uh, everything we do in a worship service matters. Now, it doesn't matter what you do outside of the worship service in the sense of if you want to paint your house blue or red, or if you want to wear a plaid shirt or a, a, a solid shirt, or if you want to have a hamburger versus a pizza. Those things are up to yourself, but when it comes to a worship service, Everything matters. Everything matters. Why don't we use the Teddy Grahams and um, orange juice? Why don't we use pizza dough and orange juice at the supper? Well, simply put, because Christ instituted the supper with bread and wine. Doesn't get any more fancier than that. Christ, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he used bread and he used wine. That's simply it. He did not use anything else. In fact, God is not present to us in any other elements other than bread and wine. God has not promised, Christ has not promised his special presence to us if we do not use bread and wine. So even if you have good intentions, that I believe in Christ by faith, even if you have the best intentions at heart, and say that I hope that this Teddy Graham and that this this orange juice will confer to me grace. Grace does not come to you via those instruments. Grace only comes to us via bread and wine. Secondly, it does matter, saints, 
because of what's called the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship. What that simply means is God and God alone, via his word, regulates, gives us the boundaries of how we are to approach him and what we are to do each worship service. Each worship service. So when we consider, and this is also, saints, as a parent, and if you're teaching your young ones, just about church in general, always remind them, son, daughter, um, if, if let's say they go off to another church or they're attending another church or they're interested in another church, ask them what they are what they doing at a worship service commanded by God. Are the songs that are being sung, the, the content of the message that's being preached, the things that we're using at the Lord's Supper, the way in which they're ministering baptism, is that the way in which God has prescribed for us to offer him holy worship? So here, Reformation Bible Church, um, which is which is you know a reform distinctive, is we believe that only God and God alone can regulate and dictate how we are to approach Him. We don't come to God in any way that we want. We don't you know we don't um, uh, we don't come a worship service and do X Y and Z and hoping to give that to God. And God saying, oh, yes, I'm, I'm pleased with that if it's not in line with his word. So, saints, simply put, we are to do in a worship service only what God has commanded us to do. That's simply it. That's simply it. Now, with that being said, then, let's answer the question. When we consider um, the elements, the bread and the wine, one of the big debates over the elements, we're excluding wine for now, we'll, we'll consider that next week, has been over the issue of bread. Now, it's quite strange, is it not? I mean, should there be a debate over the type of bread that we use? Well, historically, um, during the medieval period, and you'll find this in the Greek tradition and the Latin tradition, Greek tradition being the Eastern Orthodox churches, the Latin tradition being the Roman Catholic churches, you see a divide even in the type of bread that's used. So the Greeks, Eastern Orthodox churches, they used, and they still continue to use, leavened bread. They used leavened bread. And in the Roman Catholic tradition, they use unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. Now, does it matter? Does it matter? Well, just to put my cards out on the table, the Reformed have historically said, it doesn't really matter, but if you had to use one, use leavened bread. They weren't dogmatic on the type of bread that was being used, but what is more symbolic is leavened bread. So we're going to answer this afternoon... What type of bread should we use? Again, uh, I'm under the opinion, as well as the Reformed tradition, and I believe as well as the church fathers and even the apostles, that it was leavened bread that was used during the Lord's Supper. And it's leavened bread that should be used at the Lord's Supper. Now, let me make this caveat. 
If we go to a church and they're using unleavened bread, I don't, they're not in sin. If you use unleavened bread, you're not in sin. However, and this is like the big argument here. So if you, if you don't get this, then um, everything, everything I'm saying hangs on this. There is more symbolism in leavened bread than unleavened bread. That's that's my basic argument. There's more symbolism in leavened bread than unleavened bread. Okay, let's consider this now. What's the difference between leavened bread and unleavened bread? Leavened bread and unleavened bread. Well, the difference is simply found in the word leaven. The word leaven. Leaven is what's placed in the dough, and when it's placed, it's a substance. So, and when it's placed in the dough, it spreads throughout the dough and allows the dough to rise, become flaky. So, when you go to your supermarket and you get your Wonder Bread or Sara Lee Bread, that is dough that has been leavened for a period of time. It creates a flakiness, a softness. There you have leavened bread. So the dough, the 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 ones that you, the, the bread that you have in your pantry is it's what's called um, um, leavened bread. Now, this leavened bread, it's it takes a process. I try to do. If there's any bread experts here, then tell me after. Some say 24 hours. Some say a few days. It takes a while for bread to leaven. It, it takes quite some time for it to leaven. Now, unleavened bread, it's going to look like, simply put, a tortilla. That's what it's going to look like, a flourless tortilla. Okay? Now, let's consider then the elements themselves and, um, and uh, leavened bread and unleavened bread. To do that, saints, we have to consider the Passover. We have to consider the Passover. The context of the Passover... Um, and it was alluded to actually this morning um, in uh, Pastor Antonio's uh, sermon. The people of God are in Egypt; they're in bondage. And God, up to this point, and we're gonna—I'm gonna read Exodus chapter 12. God, up to this point, um, has been sending plagues to Egypt. And as we come to chapter 12 of Exodus, we see that God gives instructions to the people of Israel for what they're going to do or what they ought to do. Um, when he sends the tenth plague. So nine plagues have been sent. God's about to send the tenth plague. So he gives these instructions on, okay, I'm going to send this tenth plague. This is what you ought to do when I send this tenth plague. What is this tenth and final plague? Verse 12 and 13 of Exodus 12 say, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and and fatally strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the human firstborn to animals and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will come upon you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So we see that the tenth and final plague that God sends to Egypt is going to be he's going to pass through the land and wipe out the firstborn, but also the firstborn of the cattle. Now, we talked this morning about silence in heaven. We talked this morning about how there is great 
awe when when God sends forth his judgment and this judgment is seen in wrath. Well, saints, it doesn't get any more horrific than God passing through the land. And if you have a firstborn, consider your child dead. That is what God did as the tenth plague. Now, how do these people of Israel, how do they escape judgment? Well, blood from a spotless lamb was to be put over the doorpost. God sees the the blood and he passes over. This is where we get Passover meal. He passes over the door or the house, right, onto the next house. Now, during this tenth plague... Uh, there was a meal that was to be partaken of. So during during uh, God going through the land of Egypt and, and wiping out the firstborn, the people of Israel were not only to put blood over the doorpost, but also they were to partake of a meal while they did it, or while it was happening. Verse 8 of Exodus 12 says, They shall eat the flesh that same night, Roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. If you're taking notes, mental notes, whatever, just put Passover and just put unleavened bread. That's what they were to eat. Unleavened bread. Now, notice saints, um, but also the bitter herb, herbs as well, which um, represents the bitterness of their bondage in Egypt. Notice, the type of bread that was to be eaten during the Passover was unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. Now, why would God command the people of Israel to eat unleavened bread while he is going through the land? Why would he do so? Why unleavened bread? Well, simply put, the people of God had to eat their bread, had to partake of this meal in a hurry. They had to partake of the meal in a hurry. They did not have time to allow the yeast to permeate the dough for it to rise. Remember, if you want leavened bread, right, it takes time. It takes time for the bread to leaven. Israel does not have no time for the bread to leaven. They got to go. Um, so... And when we read this also in chapter 13, because in chapter 13, the next chapter, they're being led out of Egypt. So the people of Israel, they had to leave in a hurry. This is what verse 11 says. Now you shall eat of it in this way. And, and notice how they ate of it. With your garments belted around your waist, your sandals on your feet, which was, they didn't do that at the time, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in a hurry. So we see Israel was to partake of bitter herbs, representing their their bitterness of affliction in Egypt. Unleavened bread represents the hurriness and the hasteness by which they were to leave Egypt. Belt strapped, sandals on the feet, staff in the hand. Now what is this meal supposed to signify? Verse 25 through 27. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this right. So you should do this um, frequently. 
And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? So when we partake of this meal again, your children are going to ask you, or if they ask you, what does this all mean, Dad? Mom, then you shall say it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord because he passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our homes. So this Passover meal was something that Israel did every year to remind them of, yes, God's redemption, but more so God's judgment. It reminded the people of Israel of God's judgment upon Egypt. Now you might ask, okay, why is this important? Why do I need to know the background of the Passover, specifically what they ate at the, Pas- at the Passover, specifically them using, eating unleavened bread? Why is that important? Well, say it's important because many believe that the Passover, um, the Lord's Supper, is a continuation of the Passover. There are many churches, even Reformed, that believe that the Lord's Supper is a continuation of the Passover, specifically the type of bread that was used during the Passover. So if the Lord's Supper is a continuation of the Passover, specifically the type of bread that they used, then we should be using unleavened bread. That's the gist of the argument. They use unleavened bread in the Passover. Since the the Lord's Supper is a continuation of the Passover, then we use unleavened bread. Simply put. Um, Another argument that people use who advocate for unleavened bread is... um, Looking at the various negative ways in which the Bible speaks of leavened bread. So they say, you're using leavened bread. Well, consider all the ways in which the Bible speaks negatively about leavened bread. Why are you using leavened bread? So let's consider those two points. I think they're both wrong, by the way. First, let's consider the argument for those of unleavened bread advocates um, by their argument saying that there are various ways in which the Bible speaks of leavened bread in a negative way. Why would we partake of something when the Bible speaks of it and uses it in a negative way? Why would we, why would we use that? Um, Matthew 16, verses 5 through 12 say this. And the disciples came to the, either, to the other side of, of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why are you discussing among yourself the fact that you have no bread? Do you not understand nor remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you picked up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000, how many large baskets you picked up. How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you about bread? And here it is. But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. First of all, that's, that's weird, right? Because we as humans don't have leaven. Within us, and we don't, in and of ourselves, produce leaven. 
So, so what's the connection that God, that Christ is using? Now, here, here's the argument. Here, you ought to use leavened bread because Jesus associates leavened bread with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So, don't use leavened bread. That's the argument that many put forth. Is Jesus here saying that leavened bread is evil? No. He's not saying that leavened bread is evil, but he's using leavened bread and the process of leavening as an example of the wicked doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's what he's doing. He's using leavened bread, something that everyone in the land knew about, as an example to speak of the wicked teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, here's an analogy. Just as when bread is leavening, when the dough, when the, when the substance, yeast, whatever, is put in the dough and it permeates and spreads throughout the dough, allowing the dough to rise up. So likewise, when Jesus says, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, he's saying it's just as, just as yeast spreads throughout the bread, so the wicked doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees can spread within you and kill you. The spreading of the yeast in the dough. It can cause, it causes the dough to rise. Well, likewise, the, 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 the false doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees can spread in your life like a cancer and it can kill you. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. But, some might say that's not convincing. Let's then look at 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6-8. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let's celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What do we do there? I mean, that's a pretty heavy text for unleavened bread advocates. Well, saints, anytime you go to a text, the first thing you do is consider the context. What is the context of this passage? Well, the context of 1 Corinthians is sin and discipline in the church. The context is sin and discipline in the church. And this one that Paul is speaking of, he even says that I've already cast them out. So that's the context. And here, Paul is using, again, something that the people at Corinth would know about, bread. He's using the leavening of a bread as an example of removing someone from the church. The analogy goes like this. Again, just as yeast spreads throughout the church, if you allow this man to stay within your church, just as the yeast spreads throughout the dough, his sin is going to spread throughout the church. You need to remove him. I mean, we understand that example, is uh, right? Again, just as yeast spreads throughout the church, or, I'm sorry, the bread, Sin of this man, of this individual, will spread and corrupt the church. It will happen. Now some will say, well, when Paul says in verse 8, therefore let's celebrate the feast. 
not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of the malice of wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It's, he says there, feast. Many want to say, well, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Again, the context is not the Lord's Supper. The context is being a Christian. That's the context. Sin, discipline, and what it means to be a Christian. What it means for a church to be the church of Christ. Not the Lord's Supper. They say, well, then Paul is saying to celebrate the Lord's Supper with unleavened bread. Celebrate the feast with unleavened bread. But that's not, I don't think that was Paul saying. I think when Paul says to celebrate the feast, he doesn't mean the Lord's Supper. Rather, he's saying the whole course of the Christian life. The feast, the whole course of the Christian life. Celebrate the whole course of, of the Christian life. And notice, not with malice and wickedness, but with sincerity and truth. That's how you live the Christian life. Not with malice, but with truth. Not with wickedness, but with sincerity. That's how you live the Christian life. Matthew Henry explains as well the reason with which this advice is enforced. For Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us in verse 7. This is the great doctrine of the gospel. The Jews, after they kill, had killed the Passover, kept the feast of unleavened bread. So we must, uh, uh, so must we, not for seven days only, but all our days, we must die with our Savior to sin, be planted in the likeness of his death by mortifying sin, and into the likeness of his resurrection by rising again to newness of life, and that eternal and external. We must have new hearts and new lives. Note, the whole Christian life must be a feast of unleavened bread. His common uh, uh, um, conversation and his religious practices, performances, must be holy. He must purge out the old leaven and keep the feast of the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here we have two examples of Paul and of Jesus who use leavened bread as an example of wicked doctrine spreading, but also sin in the church. They're just using it as an example because everyone knows it. Everyone knows about leavening bread. Everyone knows about what unleavened bread is. So if you want to communicate something, a, a rich spiritual truth to someone, right, you can use an example that you already, that people already know about. And that's what Jesus is doing. And that's what Paul is doing. They're not saying that leavened bread is evil. They're using it as an example of what wrong doctrine can do to a person and what sin can do in a church. That's simply it. Saints, when we read these texts, I think what they tend to do is they they throw the baby out with the bathwater. They say there's sin there's leavened bread. You put them together. Leavened bread is sinful. And we don't use that. Well, saints, if unleavened or leavened bread was evil, then how do we interpret Matthew 13, 33? He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid for three sata of flour until it was all leavened. So here, leavened bread is is spoken of in a positive way of the kingdom of God advancing. So if leavened bread was such evil, right, and always associated with sin, then what do you do about the kingdom of God being like 
the leaven and the dough and spreading throughout the world. <clears throat> Anyone who says that unleavened bread must be used at the supper simply ignores the context of the many verses that use leavened bread as an example of sin or the gospel. Now, there's another argument that unleavened bread advocates will use, which they say that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he used unleavened bread. Therefore, we ought to use unleavened bread. This is the final argument. When Jesus, in fact, the big one, when Jesus at the Lord's Supper, the night he the night he instituted it, he used unleavened bread. Therefore, us in the New Covenant ought to use unleavened bread. Let's examine the Lord's Supper. Matthew 14, verse 20 to 22. While they were eating, Jesus took or he took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Note, saints, the text says he took some bread. He took some bread. Now, that word in the Greek doesn't mean unleavened bread. In fact, it means common bread. It means ordinary bread. The bread that you buy in your local supermarket. He doesn't, it doesn't mean unleavened bread. It means common bread in the Greek, in the original language. In fact, saints, if the writers of scripture wanted us to know that Jesus used unleavened bread, then they would use the word for unleavened bread. But they don't use the word for unleavened bread. They use the word for common bread when it says that Jesus took some bread. Now, um, that's the argument there. In fact, if you read also Paul's letters and everywhere in the New Testament that speaks of bread, it's never unleavened bread. It's always common bread. It's always leavened bread. Now, I can stop there and say, we use now leavened bread, and that could be enough. But let's give the new, new uh, unleavened bread advocates the benefit of the doubt. Because it might be fair to say that Jesus used unleavened bread. It might be fair to say, in fact, I'm under the opinion that he might have used, like I'm like 95% sure that Jesus, on the night he entered the Lord's Supper, used unleavened bread. Now, that's an argument of silence. But let me give you my reason. It's because the night Jesus entered the Supper was the first night of the Passover. Again, the night he entered the Supper was the first night of the Passover. Read of this in Matthew 26, uh, 26, 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread... The first day of unleavened bread is another word, another way of saying the Passover. The disciples came to Jesus saying, we're, uh, uh, what, what, what are we going to make uh, uh, to eat for the Passover? Uh, we read this also in Luke 22, 7. Um, and, the day, and the day of the unleavened bread came on which the Passover must be sacrificed. He sent Peter and John uh, to go make ready for us the Passover. So it seems clear that the night Jesus entered the supper... It was on the very same night he um, um, of the Passover. 
So it's highly likely then, saints, that Christ used unleavened bread at the Lord's Supper. Now, that makes us put everything on a standstill. Because if Christ used unleavened bread at the supper, then shouldn't that give us warrant? Well, first and foremost, I'm speculating. I'm simply speculating that Christ used unleavened bread. Because again, the Greek word for bread, when Christ is to the supper, is not unleavened bread. And if the writers of scripture wanted us to know that Christ used unleavened bread, then they could have used the word for unleavened bread, but they didn't. They used the word bread. But let's, let's consider, maybe he did use unleavened bread. Does that give us warrant then to use unleavened bread? Well, the answer still is no. Let me give you a few reasons. Number one, supposing that Jesus used unleavened bread doesn't give us warrant to use unleavened bread at the supper. For Jesus was simply going along with the customs of the day and the command of God. In other words, Jesus was being a good Jew. He used unleavened bread because that's what people were to use during the Passover. So he used unleavened bread by sheer circumstance. This is what we do during the Passover. This is what we're going to use. Secondly, the way Jesus spoke about the meaning of the Lord's Supper is quite different from the meaning of the Passover. Remember, the Passover... While, yes, it was to cause Israel to rejoice over God, freeing them from slavery, they didn't rejoice over that. The Passover was mainly to remind Israel of their bondage in Egypt. Again, the words of Exodus 12, verse 26 to 27, when God, um, and when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord because he has passed over the houses of the son of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our home. Everything about the Passover represented not only God's mercy, but, but more so it represented and reminded the people of Israel's slavery and bondage, but also the wrath and judgment of God. That's what it reminded Israel of. Think of everything that they partook of. Bitter herbs. Representing their bitterness and their bondage in Egypt. But this is quite different, saints, than what the elements of the Lord's Supper symbolize. In fact, Christ, although he instituted the Lord's Supper on the night of the Passover, I would say he wasn't even thinking about the Passover when he instituted the Lord's Supper. Yes, he was doing it because that's what they did at the time. But he wasn't focused on the bondage of his people in Egypt. Look at the word, look at Christ's words in Luke 22, 14 through 20. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I shall say to you, I shall not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's one. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine uh, now until the kingdom of God comes. And when he taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way he took the cup after uh, they had eaten, saying that this cup was poured out, which is poured out for you, is a new covenant in my blood for There are many things to note. 
First, Jesus says that I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I shall not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, what is Jesus saying? He's saying that this will be the last time we partake of the Passover. This will be the last time this ceremonial act will be partaken of. For Jesus, as we all know, saints, is the fulfillment of the Passover. Jesus is the fulfillment of that Passover lamb. Remember, saints, when Israel placed the blood of the spotless lamb over the doorpost, we, we tend to look at that and say that's nice, but you have to remember that when, when Israel did that, the blood was simply sparing their lives from God's wrath, but the blood did not take away their sins. It merely despaired them, but it did not wipe away their sins. They were still sinners through and through in need of a Savior. But notice, when Christ pours out the wine in the cup, says, this is a new covenant in my blood. Meaning my blood is far different than the Passover lamb in Egypt and the Passover lamb that's continuing to, to, be, to be thought of. This is the blood of the new covenant. This is the blood that, yes, it, it, it allows God to pass over you, but also it wipes away your sin. So there's a difference in just the symbolism. Because, and again, Jesus is not looking back at the Passover. He's actually looking forward to his cross. He's actually looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. He's taking people forward and not backward. <clears throat> the Lord's Supper is of greater uh, um, remembrance of the Passover. We don't at the supper we we don't we don't think about our bondage. We think about Jesus Christ being slain for us. But not only that, we think about the present grace that's given to us. But not only that, we think about the future feast that we will have with Christ. Now this point is brought out. By our Lord's words in verse 19, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this and remember it to me. And then in verse 20, this cup which is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Again, Christ is looking ahead and he's telling these his, his disciples, this Passover meal will be the last time, but there will be a transformation of this Passover meal. When the Passover meal, the, 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 the lamb that was placed over the doorpost, will come to reality, will take away something that it could not take away, which is the sins of the people. And saints, this is why I believe that using unleavened bread, although it is not sinful, doesn't convey the gospel message in the same way leavened bread does. Consider the words of Deuteronomy 16.3. Uh, and notice the, notice the symbol of unleavened bread. You shall, and this is also in the context of the Passover. You shall not eat leavened bread for, with it. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. The bread of affliction. Here unleavened bread is related to the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in a hurry so that you will remember the day when you came out the land of Egypt all the days of your life. In Exodus, the unleavened bread was to remind God's people of the haste 
of the hurriedness. So when they saw the unleavened bread, they were reminded that they did not have time for the bread to rise, but they had to leave in a quickness. But also it reminded them of their affliction in Egypt. So saints, in light of that, why would we use unleavened bread, which symbolized God's judgment on Egypt, but also the haste and the affliction of God's people? Why would we use something that symbolizes that? Because for us at the Lord's Supper, we don't need to partake of it in a haste. We do not partake of the Lord's Supper in a hurry. But in fact, we partake of a supper, we partake of bread that was not prepared incompletely, but we partake of a body that's been prepared for us before the foundation of the world. We prepare of bread that had time to rise, a time to cool, so it can properly nourish us. The leavened bread, simply put, represents the completeness and the perfection of Christ's perfect work. That's what I think it symbolizes. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11-26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a different... You have one in one instance, you are remembering affliction in the Passover. And in the Lord's Supper, you're proclaiming victory. Not affliction. So saints, in other words, when you... Even this, this, this day, when I will break the bread apart, yes, we look back at that gruesome death, but also we look back at when the, when Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled, when, when that serpent's head was crushed for us, and we proclaim that until Christ comes back for us. That's the symbolism of the bread. So you might think, bread is just bread. No. The leavened bread represents for us the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that unleavened bread doesn't. Also consider the nature of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread, um, if it was to sit longer than 10 minutes and if you didn't know what you were doing, if you were to break it apart, it would crack. But saints, that doesn't represent the gospel of Christ. When Christ's body was was broken for us. It wasn't cracked. It was it was torn apart. His his flesh was ripped from his skin. We can also say that leavened bread highlights the power of the gospel. Leavened bread represents the power of the gospel. Just as when bread is leavening, the yeast is spreading throughout the dough in order for it to rise. Well, simply also, the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ spreads throughout the earth. And you are a great, great example of the gospel spreading. You can think of the gospel itself spreading to you, and, and you are you are you are the, the, those ones that have been the great partakers of of the grace of Christ that have risen to the top. Lastly, saints, leaven bread symbolizes our peace with God. In Leviticus seven thirteen. We read of the type of bread that was to be used at the peace offering. With the sacrifice of this peace offering for Thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. 
Using leavened bread highlights the fact that Christ is our peace. They use leavened bread during the peace offering in the Old Testament. Well, what greater meal do we have? When we, before our eyes, um, visually see that we have peace with God, it's at the Lord's Supper. They use leavened bread in the Old Testament during the peace offering, and it's fitting since Christ is our peace and we partake of Christ at the supper, then we use leavened bread. We use leavened bread. Saints, I hope that this was helpful for you. I hope that you, you now understand um, with more clarity, with um, a little bit also um, more reverence to what we are partaking of when the minister sets aside these ordinary things for holy use, that yes, Christ has promised to be with us um, in the bread and in the wine through his spirit, but also now when you contemplate what you are holding, you now can contemplate all the things that this leavened bread represents. It represents the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It represents his body that was torn apart and broken for you. This is something that you are, even at this moment, if you have children, teach your children, especially what I'm going to do in just a moment. So we have these things for us that visually represent the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And before we close, I want us now to consider the practice of the Lord's Supper. Something that we will now start incorporating, and that is the breaking of the bread. The breaking of the bread. The elders are convinced that the bread being broken is a necessary act in the Lord's Supper. That the bread being broken is a necessary act before the Lord's Supper. Usually, when you come to the Lord's Supper, the bread is already broken. But now what we will do is the minister before your eyes will break the bread before you. So that you can visually see Christ's body being broken into pieces for you. We read this in Matthew 6, 26, 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing broke it. And gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So a part of this, this sacrificial meal and a part of this sacramental meal is this sacramental act of breaking the bread. Zacharias Eusinus says, The breaking of the bread is therefore a necessary ceremony, both on the account of its signification and for the confirmation of our faith. The breaking of the bread signifies God, Christ's body being broken for you, but also confirms that his body was broken for you. It strengthens your faith. He goes on to say, and it's to be retained in the celebration of the supper. Number one, because of the command of Christ, do this. Christ says, do this. Number two, because of the authority and example of the church in the times of the apostles, which in view of this circumstance, termed the whole transaction, the breaking of the bread. Because this is what the early church did. But also for our comfort, that we may know that the body of Christ was broken for us as certainly as we see the bread 
broken. So saints, this is to strengthen your faith. At just a moment when I break the bread, it is not a time for us to relax. It's not time for us to shut off, shut down. It's not time for us to sleep. It's not time for us to look around, look at our Bibles, get things ready. It's a time for us to consider the body of Christ being broken for us over 2,000 years ago. Put into pieces, meaning it was your sin that nailed Christ the cross. And it was Christ's body that was broken for you. So saints, I will do that now.